Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. We are back on our twice-a-week publishing schedule, folks. Thank you so much for indulging our August vacations. We are ready to get right into the swing of things. we got exactly 74 days till Election Day, or approximately, as somebody on Twitter observed, the length of the marriage of Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys, a famous unit of time that all 2000s kids will understand. What else we got, Marshall? Also, a huge thanks to those of you who rated us five stars and dropped us written reviews as well. It really improves the realignment's position on the algorithm and also helps new people find the show. We're at 530 now, and we want to get to 1,000 by the election day, or as Sagar just put it, by the length of the Kardashian-Humphreys wedding. So we want to get to 1,000, and when we get to that number, we will give it a rest. So if you haven't already, scroll down to the bottom of the podcast page on your iPhone and leave us a five-star rating. So on to this week's realignment cue. Isaiah wants to know, what are some resources for deepening one's knowledge about the realignment and the broader political system? What do you think, Sagar? Great question, Isaiah. So look, first off, if you are new to the show, you got to check out Michael Lind. He's come on the show. He's the first episode of season two with author J.D. Vance. He's actually got a book called The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite, which is just incredible. It's got a great introduction. It's a very readable text that I would say about what an actual realignment politics would look like in practice, how there is no winning the culture war, there are only a series of compromises and different ways that we need to accommodate one another in American society, and if more people on the right and more people on the left thought that way, we would all be better off. I'd also recommend Ross Douthit, also a guest on the podcast column at the New York Times, along with his book, Grand New Party, that he co-wrote with friend of the show and president of the Manhattan Institute, Raihan Salam. Henry Olson at the Washington Post is also great as well, too. And if you're looking for something a little meatier, we definitely recommend the journal American Affairs and the magazine, The American Conservative. And if you really want an even deeper set of history after that, Rick Perlstein has this amazing series on the transformation of American politics, really from the 1960s of Barry Goldwater, up until 1980 with Ronald Reagan. He just released Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Sagar and I are deep into it. Rick is a liberal, but the broader perspective that he's bringing to the table is really fascinating when we look at how parties can realign. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, Rick is really one of the preeminent scholars on realignments in American history. Wrote a book on Nixon and Barry Goldwater and so much more. There's just so much to learn from somebody like him. Also would be remiss if we didn't mention Orrin Cass, who's also been on the podcast at American Compass, where they are working on actually taking some of the things that we talk about here on the realignment and turning them into policy initiatives that people like us can get behind. So he's really turning the realignment into a reality, which is really what we need to be focused on in the first place. So if you'd like us to answer your question on air, email us at realignmentpod at gmo.com with a screenshot of your five-star review, or as some people have started doing, just leave your question in the actual review itself. We will 100% get to it. That's right. So now on to this episode. This week, we brought Emily Jashinsky. She's a great, great friend of the two of us. She recently actually filled in for me on Rising, so some of you 
might have recognized her. I wanted Emily to come on the show to kind of discuss the future of the GOP and social conservatism because this is the week of the 2020 convention. Now, Emily covers culture over at The Federalist. She's long been kind of a socially conservative but incisive commentator on what exactly is going on in pop culture. She's a longtime activist kind of in the conservative movement. Regardless if Trump wins or not, there is going to be a huge debate on the right about what the agenda should look like going forward into 2021. Now, given the weak prospects uh, with young people, the probable repeat, even if Trump wins, of a lack of a popular vote election and Biden's dominance in upper middle class white suburbs that the GOP used to depend on, you're going to hear a lot of people argue that the answer for the GOP is to move left on social issues. Now, Emily does not agree with that assessment. And I thought that it was very important to bring somebody like her on because we talk a lot here on this podcast about how Trump departing from economic orthodoxy was one of the key ingredients to his 2016 victory. But something that so many of you have asked, so many liberals that I know, Democrats and others say, how do these evangelicals stick by President Trump despite the fact that of the Access Hollywood tape? And understanding their mindset, understanding the state of kind of social conservatism in America and how they feel as if the entire culture is stacked against them and is moving at such a rapid tide in history, you are not going to be able to understand the realignment and some of the questioning of orthodoxy that we're seeing happen within the American right if you don't really understand the state of social conservatism today. And with all that being said, if you want more context on our conversation, you need to read The Wedge Issue That's Dividing Trump World by Gabby Orr. She's also a friend and she's a White House reporter at Politico. It's all about how some social conservatives want President Trump to focus on transgender issues to reverse his poll numbers, but others think that that plan is suicide. Yeah, and the most useful part of the episode, and I would barely call it an episode because it was more of a debate at certain points, was Emily's pushback against both of our biases. You know, if you follow the show, you could tell we've steered clear of social issues during a lot of the episodes, but we don't want to pretend that most people who are voting Republican are doing so because they're into industrial policy or have a clear articulation of China issues or anything like that. They're probably doing it because of these culture war issues. Because COVID-19 aside, the real central story of, I think, the last 30 years American life has been the culture war, and it's really important that people think about that as we try to move forward. So now on to our conversation with Emily. Emily Jashinsky, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. (laughs) Well, well, you know, we're mutual fans here. So audience will remember Emily most likely because I've been on her podcast. She's been on Rising. She filled in for me very recently. And Emily is somebody that I wanted to bring on in the midst of the RNC, of the DNC. There's so much that is going on right now. And Emily, I find myself, anytime I find an article about like Trump betraying populism or is like, was it populism in the first place or what the hell is actually like going on in the party. I'm just like texting you angrily. So I was like, let's just turn this thing into a podcast. And lo and behold, uh, even after we'd booked you, this new Daily Beast piece comes out. I know risers will have heard me talk a little bit about it, which is that the headline on it is just so perfect. It's like Trump allies fear he's ditching the working class for boaters and housewives. And I was like, that that's it. That's it right there. 
Uh, and I wanted to get kind of your take on what exactly is going on, Trump 2016 versus Trump 2020, just kind of your general analysis on what's happened within the campaign. Like, the, is it, did something atrophy? Was it never really there in the first place? And they just kind of rolled the dice and it came up lucky the first time. I've been turning it over in my head a lot. So what's going on? Well, Donald Trump was firmly in control of his campaign in 2015 and 2016 because there was nobody else on it, right? Like they were running a 10 person mm-hmm. campaign staff. It was remarkable for months in 2015. And that's when Donald Trump was firmly in control of all of the messaging. As he sort of became the, the nominee, you know, the, the Republican Party was trying to like let him do his thing because they didn't think that they were going to win the election. Yeah, they thought but it was going right. Right, right. And so now yeah. that he's like ensconced in the Republican establishment infrastructure, the uh, Republican establishment does have more control. And I think he's, you know, he, he has a lot of those people in his ear right now. And those are the type of people who think that he should run on taxes, right? Like he should run on cutting taxes. He should Capital run gains. on- Well, let's be specific. Capital gains taxes, not just taxes. Right. right? Capital <laughs> gains taxes. Um, yes. And yeah, and then next to like go to the estate tax, both of which are like, I'm all for it, but it's, sure. it's not what- it's not what he was doing um, in 2015 and 16, and it's not how you run a populist campaign that's tapping into what he tapped mm-hmm. into then and what Bernie Sanders has tapped into, which is, you know, as you guys both know, um, there's a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. So I think he's, now that he's ensconced in the establishment Republican infrastructure, he has less control. He has a lot of people chirping in his ears who think that um, it's, and, and Sagar, you've, you've talked about this, and I, I know Marshall has too, that they are running on calling Joe Biden a Trojan horse for socialism. Yes. This is like the big thing from now until November. And I talked to Ronna McDaniel, the head of the RNC around this time last year, it was early September. And she was saying at this event that um, they had done focus groups on socialism and socialism is what moved the needle towards Trump in among white educated suburban housewives in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, those places. Now, are you going to convince those women that Joe Biden is a socialist now? I mean, it may have worked when you're talking about Kamala Harris. It may have worked when you were talking about those candidates that came out in favor of Medicare for all. I don't know that it works with, with Joe Biden. And so you have people like this sort of chirping the president's ear with more control over the messaging. Um, and that's what the Daily Beast story was particularly interesting because clearly there are people in the president's orbit who um, are unhappy and know what worked in 2015. And I'm saying 2015 and not 2016 for a reason because the most important victory Trump had was the Republican primary. Let's, well, let's be precise about something that's very real smart. quick yeah. that could have gotten missed here, which is that it's like you said, you support capital gains taxes, but there's a difference between a policy that you support and this type of thing you would highlight when you're down 10 points during a global economic crisis where a large percentage yeah, right. of the population blames you rightly and wrongly, depending on your perspective, for the actual crisis itself. So in the article, they specifically mentioned that during an interview, I think with CNBC or Fox Business. It was Maria like Bartiroma. Mar- Maria Bartiroma. Fox Business. Trump, spe- right. Trump specifically said his yeah. second term priority was a capital gains tax cut, which is <laughs> insane. Who is the sort of question we like asking ourselves is who is that sort of for? But I, I want to get to a question that sort of 
tell the story of 1516, especially since you were reporting a lot of these things. What is this debate that we're having right now about the whole populism issue? Because this is actually a very important but intensive debate that I think if you're not deeply in the know on the right, you're going to sort of miss. So do you think Trump ever truly was a populist? Really interesting question. I think there are a couple of things that we actually know Donald Trump believes in for sure. And that is trade deals are bad and immigration policies have hurt America. Liberal immigration policies have hurt America. Mm -hmm. That is populism. So on those two issues where, and another thing we know for sure that he believes in is the media is biased. So if you look at those three pillars of Trumpism, that is absolutely populism. Um, Is it diluted? Mm -hmm by the fact that he has different, uh, he has like less firm ideological grounding on other issues and can be molded more by the Republican infrastructure. Yes, uh, absolutely it is. But on his core issues, um, the, the, the fact that elites leave regular Americans behind, you can add to those other three. That's populism. Absolutely. So he's a cultural populist. He's a populist on trade. He's a populist on immigration. Um, so I, I think if you, if you have to nail down what ideologically Trumpism is, yes, Donald Trump is a populist. Um, but I do think you, we're, we're all right to say that it's completely diluted by uh, the way in which he's molded by the Republican infrastructure. And what's interesting is that was less of an issue when the economy was going well. So if if, yeah. if, 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 the, if the unemployment rate is low and if the stock market is doing excellently, then sure, you could sort of shift a bit. Maybe you talk a lot more about you know the debt. Maybe you talk more about entitlement reform. But, and actually, let's add that issue to this too, which is that what did you think about Trump's advocacy in 1516 for not cutting Social Security, not cutting Medicare? That's, that was a huge difference between him and other candidates too. Well, I mean, what did he say? He was like, everyone will have insurance. It'll be great. It'll mm-hmm. be beautiful. Like he, he actually like, was- Everybody will have it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it really sounded like he was going in a, um, like, I don't know if Donald Trump ideologically would be opposed to um, the concept of sort of like some sort of like state run healthcare blanket, um, except for the fact that he would probably be listening to Big Pharma because I'm sure he knows people right. um, in that space. But yeah, so that's was one of those things it was like, I think what, and it's why I'm surprised at how this presidency has looked, um, because I think what he was primarily concerned with in 2015 and 16 was building this coalition of people that wanted the government to serve them, people who felt mm-hmm. forgotten and wanted to like someone who would go in there, break things up, and you know because they were disruptive be able to make sure that everybody else has health care, be able to make sure that these entitlement programs are solvent. He didn't have a path towards doing that ideologically or in a policy way. But I think what he wanted to do was just say it's possible um, and inspire that coalition because he's saying that if we disrupt Washington, it'll shake out in a way that benefits everybody in these policy areas like healthcare, entitlements, et cetera. So I think mm-hmm. to the extent that he was talking about that stuff is he wanted people to know those, you know, it was something that he cared about and it was an appeal to forgotten men and women um, because how do you get an Obama Trump voter? You make those sorts of promises. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and what's really been, what's been infuriating to me is the level of infiltration 
and of subservience that he gives these people, these free market people who have no have no allegiance to his campaign whatsoever, did not want him to win in 2015, and in many ways kind of want him to fail, and we can get to that afterwards, which is, and this was actually an insight from Tim Miller, of all people, so for the listeners, this is somebody who worked for Jeb Bush, right? right. And Tim, Tim Miller is a actually, very cogent analyst, actually. And and Tim, yeah, he, he, he was like, you know, what's crazy about this is that through the track record of Donald Trump's life, there is not one instance in which he was listening to the free marketeers ever, except one during the middle of this pandemic, during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And then I go and I read an anonymous quote for some GOP official in here who's like, look, we can't do this populist stuff because everybody's focused on the pandemic and Trump is sometimes off visiting factories that are like producing PPE, uh, personal protective equipment. And I was like, so this person doesn't see that we are living, I mean, t tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think we are living in the most amenable moment to populism in 100 years since the 1932 election. And that if either of the candidates were espousing some level of like major industrial policy and of a transformative change in American economic life and of all rooted in we will survive the pandemic and come out of it stronger, that they would win a 1932 style victory. And yet, I mean, Biden and the Democrats, they've made their choice. We'll get to that. But with the Trump choice just seems so, I mean, manifestly stupid. And yet nobody in the administration really seems to realize it. So I guess what I really want to come to with you is, is this a triumph of ideology? Like, is this what happens whenever, if, you, if, if two of us are interacting, say, in government, and I'm the person who really holds rigid beliefs, the other person, a la Trump, is somebody who could kind of go either way, doesn't really hold his ground on anything, am I always going to win because I'm rigidly ideological? What do you think? Well, so I think the Republican establishment is not rigidly ideological on anything except for fiscal issues. Um, right. and, and I think that's what you're getting at here. So like the Republican mm -hmm. establishment, I mean, even Mike Pence caved on RIFRA in Indiana when they had the- right. uh, What's the RIFRA? the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, where they had a transgender bathroom um, mm -hmm. conflict between the NCAA and, was it the NCAA? Either way, they had this as an issue in the state of Indiana, even Mike Pence caved on that. So I think um, this is, you're correct. This moment is more a more ripe populist moment than even 2015 and 2016 were, because people are looking around and they see all of their institutions have failed them during this yeah. pandemic. Local institutions have failed them, state institutions have failed them, the media has failed them massively, and the federal government has failed them. So when you look at the, all of these levels of institutional failure, this is a very populist moment. And that's why this is fascinating to see the, the central message that Democrats sent during the DNC and during the convention that we watched this week was basically that Joe Biden is your safe choice. Joe Biden is hilariously going to get back to better, which sounds like Selena Meyer's slogan and Veep. Um, but they're trying to say that the Democrats are safe and that they're the real patriots and that they're the real people of high character. But I think what they're missing is that there really is this appetite, not for um, the 
if not for another Obama, like Biden is kind of running as the, the ally of Obama, um, they forget and the media certainly forgets that a lot of people really didn't like Obama, didn't feel well served by Obama. Um, he, his approval rating dipped very low at certain points in his presidency. Um, and so I think Democrats are missing that there's a populist appetite for uh, change even in this moment when everybody seems exhausted by the chaos, I think Jeb Bush actually correctly predicted that this would be a chaos presidency. So when people are exhausted by the chaos, they yeah, think, right. you know, let's run as the safe choice. But I think that they're missing, there's a, people don't want the status quo of 2015 and 2016 back. They, uh, they, want, they still want change and neither party really seems poised to address that. But here's to the, the thing, extent, though, that one, are... sec, one sec, Marshall, uh, to the extent that they do, and Marshall, I, I know that you disagree a bit, so I want to get your response to this as well. To the extent that they want to return to 2015, 2016, they don't want to be exhausted by the chaos of firings and all these other things, but the, but the yearning for something different. And the tweet, I mean, just the, you know, the, the briefings and all, all the things that are attendant to Trump, the personality, the man himself. Go ahead, Marshall. Yeah, I, I actually disagree with a lot of that. A, you just sort of made the case for nominating Joe Biden for president in the sense from, from a Democratic Party perspective, because Joe Biden isn't coming making a big argument about neoliberalism. He's not a policy guy. He's not leaning into Twitter. He's not making an argument about Medicare for all. All he's saying is, hey, I'm going to pass a stimulus bill and your job's going to exist, and you're going to be able to get medical tests, and we're competent, and we're technocrats. That's the argument, and it's actually a pretty good argument. So that's the pushback against the populist thing, because in terms of what the Democrats have to do in the fall, it's unclear to me why they need to harness populist energy, because what they need to do is they need to turn out minority voters, and they need to turn out upper-middle-class suburban people. That's an excellent coalition, and that's something which amongst a lot of those cohorts, there's so much hatred for Trump that that's what they're sort of come out for. It's true that there aren't that many people who are sort of voting affirmatively for Joe Biden, but I don't think they're under, I don't think the Biden campaign is under any impression that that's what they actually need to sort of do there. So I, I think that the populism opportunity actually is on the right, not on the left, or not on the Democratic Party center left. Well, I think that there's um, a really huge fight over the Obama-Trump voters, whether they will be Obama-Trump-Biden voters or Obama-Trump-Trump voters. And that's happening with the Rust Belt boomers. And I do think that you have to have some, and, and Joe Biden does this. He doesn't do it mm. enough because the, the Democratic establishment is um, more clueless than the Republican establishment, arguably. Um, but when he talks positively about unions and police officers and all of those other things that doesn't sound like populism, but in the sort of cultural moment where elites are against all of those different things, I see that as populism. And yeah, when you see, agree, like actually. talking about unions right. and like uh, all of those different things, Joe Biden can do that well. And I do see that as like the democratic establishment doesn't realize that they need to have him talking about that all of the time, because to the extent that this election is going to be swung by recapturing the Obama Trump voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, and um, Pennsylvania, you have to have flavors of that. You have to have notes of that. And I agree that, you know, you have to do it while also seeming like you're the safe choice. But at the same time, you, you can't, like, the most, the most potent line of attack against Joe Biden is going to be the Trump campaign running ads connecting him to China in the Rust Belt. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so the, there are some, like it's, a, it's definitely a mixed bag because you do have suburban voters for whom you wanna seem like the safe choice. It's the same thing for Trump. He wants to talk about law and order. Um, but there, you, you also have to get it um, in a way I don't think either party establishment quite does. Yeah, I think and you're I right, want, which is that, oh, go ahead, Marshall. Yeah, yeah and I, I wanna take this to your neoliberal point just because it's something we've actually all like literally debated about on this show and in other places too, which is that I reject the idea that aside from specific policy areas where there we could debate trade policy, these sort of very specific areas, obviously a lot of those Obama-Trump voters disagree with what we'd call neoliberal sort of center-left, center-right policies in 1516. For the past 40 years though, working class voters especially have been dissatisfied with either party before neoliberalism was even a thing. So I think by focusing on specific policies, we sort of miss the underlying current, which is that there's this huge swath of the country that is dissatisfied with this country's institutions. They don't like the media. They don't like either political party. They don't really... They don't belong to unions or civic institutions anymore. Like maybe they go to church still, but that's something which has declined overall. So I just think that there's a broader theme here, which is that which is the theme which has fueled these change elections. So a change election is Reagan in 1980, it's Bill Clinton in 1992, and also Ross Perot. Um, 2000s a weird sort of wash, but 2008 is certainly that for Obama, and 2016 is that for Trump. Now, what I said on Rising, and you, we should get into this now, is that Trump did well in 16, not because he had this brilliant critique of neoliberalism. You know, he, he said things that people would sort of been saying for the past 40 years. Um, but what he did was he made clear that he was the change candidate. Hillary Clinton was the establishment candidate. And in our history over this past 40-year period, the change candidate tends to win. So the issue for Trump in 2020 is that he was well-suited to run as the change candidate in 2016, irrespective of debates about neoliberalism. But he's horribly suited to make those arguments in 2020 because he's very much that sort of establishment settled candidate. And Biden, because he could focus on COVID, he could say, hey— yeah. Let's take it back to 2015. And that doesn't, for him, that doesn't mean the TPP. That doesn't mean Obama policies. He's not talking about Obamacare on the stump. He's just talking about, hey, you would trust that your government could get you a test within three hours. Yeah. No, no, no. It's so interesting. And it reminds me of the, I, I forget, I think it was a Trump campaign tweet. It may have been a tweet from a Trump campaign person where they showed a video picture of Portland and said, this is Joe Biden's America. Yeah. Um, right. as it, well, you're talking about the America of the sitting president of the United States. So if your <laughs> argument is that it's going to get worse, that's different. But that's why Joe Biden is able to come up with this uh, campaign slogan that we're going to build back better. That's change. And so it makes you wonder um, how the change candidate dynamic plays out in 2020, because the change in this case is either more disruption and more chaos, which I don't say those as dirty words, because while they are dirty words with some voters, with other voters, they're probably still appealing. Yeah. or it's going back. And so going back to the, the status, the political status quo that we had in 2015 or 16, which we didn't see, you know, rioting in the streets, but you know, it's, so it's, it's a trade-off between the, the system that wasn't working for a lot of people, but like you said, Marshall, at least, you know, you could, you, you felt like you could get a test when you needed it, that the, the government wasn't, um, completely embroiled in chaos and disruption. So that's, 
it's, it's a really fascinating question as to how that change dynamic plays out in 2020, because it's either we're going to go, we're changing back to the status quo, or we're changing towards more disruption. Yeah. And I think there's, you should, everyone should always be weary of reading too much into any election and like verifying, and I'm guilty of this too. And I'm sure everybody here has, has, has said it. I think that the real, I think the real question here is about the future of the party coalitions themselves, regardless yes. of even this exact vote. Because you said something very important during, whenever you talk to RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. Is she, what did she talk about there? White suburban housewives. Yes. Now I would I would posit right now that those people are gone. I think they're gone from the Republican coalition, likely for the next decade, decade and a half, possibly forever, because. I would say that you could say in 2019 that that housewife is more afraid of, uh, she's more afraid of socialism or taxes or whatever. I would say right now, you could raise her taxes by 25%, but as long as she could remain in good social standing in PTA, aka not being aligned with Trump, not yeah. being anti-Black Lives Matter, she could go to her book club and talk about white fragility and, and Ibrahim Kendi's anti-racism books. She would take that deal any day because as long as she could still pay the bills, you know, taxes might go up, down, whatever, as long as it's not an existential to her, their economic life. And I really mean existential. They're going to choose that cultural, um, that cultural cachet every single time. So I think Republicans have generally lost those people for the long run. Now, this has a lot of big implications because the Democrats, I think, are perfectly aligning themselves towards that. And I saw this with Joe Biden, right? Which is that the very same day of the you ain't black comment, right? Literally exactly the same day. He gives an interview, I think it was on CNBC. And he said, I'm going to, he said, I will not raise taxes on anyone making more than $400,000 a year. Now, immediately, a lot of people caught that because Barack Obama in 2008 made the pledge of 250. So in the middle of all this, Biden revises that up by 150K. To me, that seemed like a very concerted moment of they are going after that upper middle class base. They're actually adopting some of Republican economic policy, Reaganist economic policy, which brought these suburban voters into the Republican coalition in the 1980s. And now they actually hold the cultural ground that those suburban housewives, suburban husbands, whomever actually hold. I don't think it's a good um, policy for Republicans to try and win these people in the long run, because I think that they're ultimately lost a lot. Like soccer, let me go ahead. Let me introduce the piece because that, this is yeah, actually this like is what important. we're talking about. Right. So, you know, so the first piece we started with this episode was this Daily Beast article, but Ram Emanuel, so, you know, Obama's um, former chief of staff, recent mayor of Chicago wrote this really excellent, regardless of you, your disagreements on policy, just summary of the democratic case that you just made, Sagar. And it was mm -hmm. in the Wall Street Journal, which is very fitting for the type of voters <laughs> he's trying to speak to. It's like very on brand, like good, good, good for you from a political perspective, but it's titled yeah. Biden Republicans don't turn back. And the subheader is Reagan Democrat. And I want to get your thoughts on this entire dynamic, Emily, after this, but Reagan Democrats found a permanent home in the GOP after 1980. The tables may now turn at last. So what he makes, the, the argument he makes, I suggest, I mean, most of you guys probably don't have paywalls for the Wall Street Journal, so I'll just summarize real quick. The argument he makes is that Trump is trying to say this is 1968. The Democrats are crazy. They're socialists. There's rioting in the streets. 
Rom dismisses that. He says, no, this is 1980, in that there's this huge coalition of people who are a part of the um, party in power who the Democrats are going to steal. So Reagan in 1980, he took the Reagan Democrats. These were working class, often ethnic white Democrats who started voting Republican because of a variety of cultural and economic issues. And they stayed in the Republican column for a long time. And that's how Reagan had blowout wins twice in a row in Georgia to Bush won. Emmanuel's point is that now those upper class suburban voters that Sager's talking about, those are the Biden Republicans. They're Republicans. Mm -hmm. They're fiscally conservative. They're probably socially moderate. I wouldn't even say that they're sort of Ibram Kendi people. They're probably just like moderate, you know, libertarian-ish voters. Mm -hmm. But they're now going to stay. Rahm's point is that these people need to stay in the Democratic Party long term. If they do that, they sort of win. So what do you think about all this dynamic? No, this is like, I think the most important thing. Um, and especially like, I'm, I'm not really much of an economics person. I'm more, I come from the, the cultural side of this discussion. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I mentioned that um, conversation with Ronna McDaniel around this time last year. Well, in that same conversation, she told me about how their fundraising went through the roof when um, Hollywood was doxing Republicans and when mm -hmm. Kavanaugh was being attacked was being attacked. And that is really, really interesting because when we're talking about the white, educated, suburban housewife, should the Republican Party give up on the white, educated, suburban housewife? I mean, I don't know because I do think that, as Marshall said, I don't know that those are Ibram X. Kendi voters. And I've disagreed with Sagar mm -hmm. um, over text about this. Uh, it, it's true mm -hmm. that they want to sort of um, peacock as loving, compassionate, um, ostensibly progressive, but not really like radically progressive, just like decent anti-racist people, um, decent loving people, mm -hmm. tolerant of gay marriage, tolerant of gay rights across the board, whatever it is. But at the same time, I think um, transgenderism is increasingly going to be a populist issue. Um, Gabby Orr wrote a story about that in Politico. Really interesting mm -hmm. look um, at how the Republican Party is approaching that issue. And the RNC has tapped Nick Sandman to speak um, at the convention. And Nick Sandman is, is the, the Covington Catholic kid who successfully sued CNN for defamation. Right. And what the Republicans are trying to do is reach out to those um, upper middle class white suburban women in Wisconsin and um, Pennsylvania and Ohio and Michigan, who, by the way, are different than the white suburban upper middle class people in, in California or in Massachusetts or upstate New York or, the, or well, outside the city or Connecticut, whatever it is. Um, and I'm from Wisconsin. And I, like, I know those women, um, they are trying to reach out to them and say, the left has gotten so culturally radical that they want to attack your sons and your husbands. They want to endanger your children. They want to radically mm -hmm. upend our conceptions of things like sex and gender. And this is something with this is something that Washington completely misses. This these are dirty issues that nobody wants to touch in the establishment in Washington, DC. They want absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, they want to wash their hands of the culture war. They think the culture war, this is why they spin the false narrative that the culture war is fomented by conservatives. 
when by definition progressives are fomenting the culture war. That's the definition of the term progressivism. They're the ones that want to, by their own admission, radically change society. Washington doesn't want to think about how um, those, they'd rather reach out to those women by talking about socialism. They'd rather reach out to those people by talking See, about tax rates. Yeah. So that that's what I want to get in. That's very interesting, which is that is this coded because if the Trump campaign or the RNC or whomever were to talk in the way that you just did, I think it would appear like a much more cogent political strategy. Because I think that the way, of course, you're always going to have to filter everything that you say through the mainstream media, who are always going to look at all the things that you listed there as empirical goods. They're not even going to understand what is controversial but less so necessarily now. about anything that you just listed. That's true. Yeah. That I mean, yeah, direct methods do exist, but I think that. Let's say, you know, for a Gen X, you know, largely person, in terms of the strategies that they are pursuing right now, like around this whole white suburban demographic, in especially right now with the Democratic Party, because this is where I what I think is interesting is that the subtext of what Rahm is saying is don't go crazy on either front, like on the cultural front or the economic front. And that as long as they do that, that they're very likely to win that vote, which again, as Marshall points out, is a pretty good strategy if you're a Democrat. And I think one of the things I've had to reassess kind of myself is that the Biden strategy is actually very sound, that there is a large electoral coalition within the people who are already activated um, within the electoral system. And I, I mean that because there's 100 million people who don't vote, right? And there's it's very important actually to understand who those people are and, and whatnot. But if you're banking on a strategy of keeping people inside, you know, whoever's inside the tent kind of already, that this is not a bad bet that in order to run based on like, we're going to do the pandemic, we're not going to raise taxes in a crazy amount. We're not, I mean, and again, we should remember this, regardless of what you think on a policy level of how Biden is going to enact. And I also agree with you. I think there's going to be a lot of like some crazy people who end up working in the Department of Justice. But the American people view Joe Biden as more moderate than Donald Trump and Mike Pence. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people have been able to grapple with. And this is kind of like my long-winded way of getting to an excellent piece that you wrote, which I actually wanted to really break down here because I think it's fascinating, is the lack of political language that we have to describe our current political environment and people like Kamala Harris and Biden in particular, which is that, actually no, more, more so Kamala Harris. We don't really have the political language, Emily, to describe someone who is pro-Wall Street and also pro-reparations. And I, I mean, like I put those two things together because they're so stark, but that's actually a pretty good representation of elite liberalism today I mean, is it moderate? Like, I don't know. What, what do you think? No, and that's why, like, Kamala yeah. Harris, after she was announced as the VP pick, was paraded around in corporate media publications as a centrist and as a moderate. And those words were deployed often. But Kamala Harris is not a moderate. She is absolutely not mm -hmm. a moderate um, on cultural issues. She is fiscally... Um, I guess right. you could call her a moderate or a centrist because she, you know, Wall Street cheered her... Um, her, her being named to the ticket. And yeah, I mean, she, she waffled on Medicare for all 
And yeah, I don't think she would want to like disrupt the capitalist system. I think, you know, she is largely mm -hmm. pro-capitalist, which is something even Elizabeth Warren calls herself. Um, <laughs> but it, it was literally right. But she is on all of these different issues. And Biden too, by the way, on cultural issues, not so much on tone. Um, Biden mm -hmm. still talks like an old school blue dog Democrat. But if you look at his, uh, what he supports on the cultural level, neither of these candidates is a moderate. Um, and actually McClatchy did an analysis of Biden's platform versus Hillary's platform in 2016. So Biden 2020 versus Hillary 2016. And said, he's way for this to the left when you evaluate all of the issues um, mm -hmm. than Hillary Clinton was. And these cultural ones are not the issues that Washington wants to talk about. I think because of Trump, the right is increasingly realizing they have to talk about it. And the left is increasingly incapable of not talking about it um, because it's so important to that like progressive base. And you have Bernie voters who are super culturally liberal and want to talk about there being 5,000 genders. Um, and then you have Bernie voters who don't give a damn about that and just yeah. want health care for their kids and just want to be able to afford these things and just want to be part of a middle class because they've worked their asses off. They worked so yeah. hard. Um, and so it's, it's this, when people talk in terms of, when people in politics talk in terms of like the public, the public wants this, the public wants that. Well, what we're actually talking about is smaller coalitions, right? The, a co a, a wide swath of the public wants this, not the entire public. You, you can break it down into you know, little parts and bits and pieces, and that's who, you know, people need to be more precise in their language. But yeah. I think that, and that gets to the balance between like, how do you talk to suburban women in the Rust Belt versus for suburban women in California? All of those different questions apply, but we do not have a term in our political language for a neoliberal, a fiscal neoliberal, a fiscal neoliberal and a cultural leftist. There, it just mm -hmm. does not exist. And that's really going to be a, a problem in this election because the media is going to continue to um, lavish Biden and Harris in the terms like centrist and moderate because the media is made up of coastal elites who are on board with all of these cultural agenda items and don't realize that there's so much further to the left than a lot of the rest of the country. See, so, this is interesting. Oh, sorry, please. No, 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 no. I think that's, I just really think that's a huge problem. And I think it gets to a lot of what you guys talk about and what, frankly, um, you guys in the sort of like the part of the conservative movement that's heading in this direction is causing this because there is a realignment happening and we don't really have the words to talk about it. Quick shout out to Lincoln Network, the sponsor of this podcast. If you want to learn more about Lincoln Network and the awesome work that Sagar and I are doing moving forward at the Reboot Conference after the election, go to rebootconference.org to find out more. See, what's interesting here is that when you were saying, for example, we don't have a word for describing a fiscally centrist, pro-Kendi Democrat, and I think we actually do, that's actually moderate, right? Because for mm -hmm. me, moderate is just around a spectrum. So actually, mm -hmm. that's a actual moderate. I think if you actually look at the full spectrum of the Democratic Party's coalition, eh, Kamala Harris is right in the center of that. I think in certain ways, 
if it depends which day of the week it is for Elizabeth Warren, in certain ways, Elizabeth Warren is a, is a centrist um, from those sort of perspectives too, especially on the sort of social cultural issues, especially the version of her that existed during the 2000s. So huh. I think that we should avoid. I, I, I guess so. I, I like your I like your point that the language is inadequate, but I don't think the language failure comes from the moderate phrase because by some standards, actually Marco Rubio is a moderate. If you place him on the sort of full spectrum of the Republican party, when it comes to economic right. policy issues, but he's also very socially conservative. So I could just see a Democrat saying, how dare someone say Marco's moderate when I could cite this, for example, he's against, Roe I can v. give Wade, you, et cetera. Yeah. I can give you a perfect example, Mars. This actually happened with John Kasich when I was on with crystal. <laughs> and uh, with AOC and what they were talking about, they're like, he's an anti-choice extremist. And I was like, well, I was like, isn't he just like pro-life? Yeah, you know what I mean? I was like, I think he's actually just like a typical pro-life governor. But I'm saying like, okay, so that's actually, like you said, Emily, that's actually a position which is like, eh, you know, like true pro-life in America. What is it, like 42%, something like that? So, okay, that's where it is. Um, and then the media was also calling him a moderate. So they were actually objecting to the media calling John Kasich a moderate because he was, you know, semi, not even semi, right? Center right, really, if you think about it on, in terms of social issues or in this one social issue, not even on all social issues. So it's almost like we're in this like X, Y, Z plane. And I agree with you, which is, I I don't think that we should really think, I don't know, Marshall, you, you jump in here too, which is that, should we ditch this phraseology? Like, is it, is it actually useful? in terms of the media, and I think maybe, Emily, just as a question also to you, is is the issue here not just the, is the phraseology, or is the issue the media who uses the phraseology? Well, so, so this is, yeah. Well, Emily, I was gonna go say, go the spectrum has always been a terrible way to gauge people's ideological orientation, but my rebuttal to Marshall was going to be, is actually something that Sager gets at. Like, if Crystal is calling John Kasich an anti-choice extremist, which from that perspective, I guess John Kasich being sort of a, a normal pro-life person and not even like a like an extreme pro-life person mm-hmm. qualifies as an extremist because on these cultural issues, there have been there's been such a rapid shift. And so when you were talking about a Kamala Harris or a Marco Rubio, Marshall was talking about them being moderates on their respective side of the spectrum. So on the left, Kamala Harris, a moderate Democrat, Marco Rubio, moderate Republican by some measures. But the spectrum is two parts put together. And that just doesn't work anymore. That's completely broken. So when you put Mm -hmm. those two parts together, it doesn't make a lot of sense because to someone like Crystal, John Kasich is an anti-choice extremist because we have the normalization of abortion to birth on the left. Um, And that's actually really true. But if you actually ask public opinion for abortion up until birth, it's like 70% or more are against something like that. But to Sagar's point, the media is on the same page as the left when it comes to that. And there's surveys that show Mm -hmm. the um, support for abortion among journalists, and they're very supportive of it. You'll, You'll be surprised to learn. And so they, because to them, that's a normalized position that's how this like gets distorted when it goes to the media megaphone. Yeah, so a couple notes here. I'm going to do something I've never done on this show before, which is stick up for the Republican establishment in D.C. very directly. To your point earlier, which was really interesting about the need to fight on social issues, because obviously there are cases where the progressive left has moved social issues to the left, right? Compare 
2008, forget 2016, compare the 2008 Democratic Party. President Obama literally said he opposed gay marriage and there <laughs> yeah. wasn't a problem there. And obviously everyone knew that was fake, but it was still kabuki theater that was permitted. <laughs> but at the same time, though, the right, I think, has been chastened by the gay marriage experience. Because if yeah. I'm putting on a lefty hat here, I'd say, no, look, like the right... George W. Bush in 2004 ran on constitutional amendments to ban gay marriage in states. Republicans yep. were obviously very, and obviously there were there were far more socially conservative Democrats during the 90s. So this is another example of how this breaks down. But a lot of Republicans were in favor of don't ask, don't tell with gays in the military. A lot of Republicans were in favor of the Defense of Marriage Act of 1986. Obviously, Bill Clinton signed that. But there's this case to be made that Republicans were incredibly confident that gay marriage was an issue, that they had not only majoritarian support, but you could actually use that to win elections. That shifted so quickly. I think it shifted quickly because of, A, something we talk about on the show a lot, and something I would actually like you to get into, because something our listeners might not know is that you're actually the hippest conservative we know. I don't mean that in the super annoying, like, grifty, like, check out this what young up? lady. She's she's with it. She watches VH1 and stuff. But, I mean, you, you write, like, really, like, awesome, like, movie reviews, and you, like, watch actual television. So, so speak to this. But the broader issue is that because Republicans don't control any cultural or economic or corporate institutions fighting these battles you may win something right so bush may win ohio in 2004 when he's running against gay marriage but he but it, but the idea that you could do that long term of lgbtq lgbtq issues especially when trump is president because that's like the last thing i'll add to your framework which is that sure is there hypothetically a world where a perfectly eloquent right of center right republican is able to articulate the case for let's say keeping the genders separate in wrestling or track and field sure trump couldn't do it i guarantee you given the hyperpolarized state of this country if trump were to come out in favor of that position you would see that shift that would shift the discourse to that sort of point because trump's greatest strength and his greatest weakness is that he polarizes and is able to sort of take energy that way so what do you what do you that's a lot to throw at you but i just want to know yeah, no, 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 That's, it's an important question. And as someone who kind of runs in socially conservative circles, um, despite also being somebody who owns Beats, uh, which is obviously my signal of hipness, um, very hip, <laughs> very in tune with the youths, um, I can say that uh, it's, I, there is nothing that has rocked the conservative movement like the Obergefell decision. Um, and it's happened gradually it wasn't sort of like earth shattering them i mean it was that too but this is something that's happened gradually as republicans are still reeling from the notion that public opinion has shifted so dramatically on something that was a winning issue for them just 15 years ago and, and i think that's what's... the gay marriage decision yes, in 15 right, right just to make it yeah yep yeah, exactly um and what republicans are now terrified of and I'm not a Republican, but I can say I'm, I'm also terrified of this, is that when you have um, a Democratic politician in office who assumes control over the administrative state, uh, over the administrative state, you are going to move closer to normalizing a lot of these cultural issues like the, the battle over transgenderism. Um, and when you have a Democrat in office, they normalize the far left positions on those cultural issues. And again, this is where the spectrum fails us because the public opinion is shifting on this. And so the political spectrum obviously has to sort of shift in motion with that. And the parties don't always reflect the public, 
but the spectrum that like public opinion has to be sort of factored into the equation of what the orientation of the spectrum and the way that what terrifies republicans is that having a another leftist in charge of the department of education is going to take a huge leap forward in terms of normalizing um, right. things like transgenderism and like what the Obama administration did in 2015 was to send a letter from uh, King, the secretary of education at the time that conflated sex with gender identity, which is basically the Equality Act um, in a government document, right. which can then be used in legal battles. That is a sweeping cultural change that would normalize things because it would force schools to comply with them in order to receive funding, which basically means they would have to comply with them. And so in all of these localities, the government would be enforcing a concept of biological sex and that carries authority and that carries weight for a lot of people. And so the administrative right. state can actually normalize a lot of these cultural things. The well, Title IX battle. Then. Yeah. Let I mean, me ask you this then, because, okay, I hear you. This is a lot of the reason why social cons went 90-10 for Trump. This was a lot of the Flight 93 thesis, which I think we've talked about here on the podcast. But just to summarize, just in case we haven't is this was an idea back in 2016. It's like Flight 93, which is one of the hijacked planes um, during the 9-11 attacks that at the very least, you got to try and charge the cockpit. You might crash, but who knows? You know, you might be able to pull the, the plane out. And yet here's here's my challenge to the socially conservative people and to many of these others, because they're still wedded to libertarian free market ideology and an anti-government thesis, which is that, okay, you guys, uh, you guys have that position and that's why you all voted for Trump. Good thing then that Trump appointed the you know two Supreme Court justices. Oh, and then they ruled for Bostock, which is probably you know the biggest defeat that social conservatives have had at the Supreme Court since Oberg Obergefell. And before that, I couldn't even tell you. Well oh, done, and then Fed Sock. I also saw um, that there's like critical race theory seminars that are being conducted at Los Alamos National Laboratory under the Trump administration. So I'm like, oh, all this is happening while conservatives supposedly run the government. And yet, well, this bolsters two separate arguments. One is, you know, anti-government itself being like, oh, all government is bad. And, you know, if government can do anything, then they're, they're always going to win, etc. My challenge would be, and this is the political reckoning that I, I want to know if they understand, which is that at this point, I do not think it is possible, and especially in this election, but especially going forward, as I've laid out, and I feel strongly about this, for a majority of suburban voters to vote for Republicans for socio-cultural reasons. And I think that's going to sweep the country largely because of what Marshall talked about, which is ownership and control of the cultural institutions. So the, your only hope is to win working class voters across the spectrum. You talked about earlier about that Bernie voter who doesn't care about gender. All we really care about is health care and, and, so, and economic and an eco, some sort of economic future in this country. Those voters, working class voters, 15 years ago were with Republicans on gay marriage. They are now, and Marshall, you said this, they're basically Joe Rogan libertarians, right? They're like pro-2A. They don't really like political correctness, but they're like pro-marijuana legalization, pro-drug legalization. Live and, and let they're live. especially not. Yeah, they're living let don't live. Try like, hey, look, you know, somebody wants to do it, like, go for it, right? They're not social Puritans whatsoever, and they're no. largely secular people. So can that coexist, do you think, as a... Uh, like there's this concept in in conservatism of like a three-legged stool, like the fiscal conservatives and the neocons and the social conservatives. They all look out for each other. The fusionism, obviously, that's all bullshit. But um, and a lot of you know Trump kind of blew all that up. But is that 
has there been any reckoning with the social cons? Because this is what I have never seen, is that they're like, hey, maybe we're going to have to ditch some of the, you know, the free market stuff that we came up with because that very much rules over this coalition, doesn't really look out for us. But at the same time, uh, if they do want any sort of new fusionism, it's going to require them to understand that they're going to have to go after working class voters, which do not agree with them on any of this stuff whatsoever. Yeah, and I think this is something the Democrats are grappling with as well, is that like, because there are a lot of free marketeers in the Democratic establishment, they ha- and, and Democrats, frankly, are probably better at this, is they need to make their policies, fiscal policies work in concert with the free market, right? So like mm-hmm. Obama tried to come up with an ACA, an Affordable Care Act, that worked in concert with the free market. I don't know how successful he was at that, but I think Republicans need to figure out, and this is something that like reformicons have been, a project that reformicons have undertaken mm-hmm. for almost two decades now, is how do we tinker with, how do we tinker around the edges of some of these government programs to make them friendly to free markets? And how do, because of course we don't have a truly, purely capitalist system. Um, and so how do you have the, but for the working class part of it, What's interesting, what was fascinating is you brought up political correctness, which is something that is kind of the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about much. Uh, We've talked about it in some ways on this podcast, but it's so important. There were two things that were basically a pillar of Donald Trump's platform that Washington still doesn't understand and Washington still still missed. And if you go on a politician's website, it always says platform, you click on the tab and they have a list of policy issues. If Donald Trump's uh, website accurately reflected his platform, it would have a section on political correctness and it would have a section on media bias. And social conservatives, in order to reach those sort of working class voters that might be Joe Rogan libertarians, and I think that's a good way to put it, and another example of why our political language fails us in this moment and will only continue to fail us harder um, as things go forward, to reach those people actually talking about the media and how it's out to how it's just completely failing all of us which is completely mm-hmm. true nobody knows what to believe on something as simple as masks something as simple right. as masks it's not even just you know believing what's true of republicans or democrats it's lifestyle stuff um, it, it, that is a huge part of reaching the working class. Political correctness is a huge part of reaching the working class. Um, there was a, a, a survey that CNN covered actually excellently uh, about a year ago that found how much of the Democratic base was like against political correctness. It's a huge amount of the Democrat. It's like seventy like percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah everybody, wait, but, everybody but hates this- it. But this, but 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 that's the problem, though, which is why this podcast is an accidentally turned into a let's cheer Joe Biden's political moves podcast, <laughs> which is that the Democrats are going to, I think they're mostly going to resolve that issue. I think that see, you won't, you, it's actually really fascinating mm-hmm. to sort of watch the narrative shift in national magazines. For example, at the Atlantic, right? A progressive, a little past the center left magazine, you're seeing anti-anti-racism pieces. Connor Friedestorf did a great piece last weekend talking about how it was, it was, it was, it was a piece about how a, um, a basically a white member of a school board was bouncing his friend's black child on his knee. And one of the other white board members who's very sort of into the woke stuff had a conniption on air. And it was just sort of insane. She was saying, you harm black people when you bounce like a black person. And it's terrible. And, you know, as a person who has white parents, 
Um, it's super like weird to sort of like <laughs> see that expensive. from an inception. Well, no, I, I actually kind of wonder what, what my parents would sort of look like because they're 1990s <laughs> Democrats who adopted yeah. two black children. But the point is, this is in the Atlantic and they're pushing back against it. You're seeing people like Yasha Munk also at the Atlantic yeah. who is sort of yeah. pushing back with this with first faith, with first faith. So I actually think that now that Joe Biden has shown that you can sort of wink at the anti-racism stuff. But it's not as if any Democrats, like, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Ibram Kendi had this sort of, I want the Department of Anti-Racism, which yeah, is going right. to be able to uh, pre-clear every single a law. constitutional local, amendment, too. Yeah, yeah constitutional amendment. Right. Every <laughs> local, state, and federal policy will have to pass this department to prove it's anti-racist. No Democrat who's going to win the nomination is going to actually talk about that. Because once again, the Democratic Party's actual base isn't really there. There is, There's this, I think Republicans are screwed up because there's this version of the Democratic party that exists on twitter and i also think no offense soccer exists mm. in the heads of lots of rising viewers that just actually isn't real so we're going to see these sort of overreach instances which i think trump drives a lot but but actually i think democrats are going to find a way to appeal to those people no i so i think joe biden is not a bulwark that can withstand the cultural tide so i do think joe biden is a bulwark i think you're right that he um had a lot of he has a lot of people convinced in the media establishment and the democratic establishment people who are on shows like morning joe i think he has them convinced for the moment that you can withstand the crushing cultural tide of cultural liberalism but that has not been um true in terms of the trajectory of this country since the 60s that has not been true these are the people that are in charge of every single institution in except for the uh, like Democratic and Republican establishment, maybe for now, because mm. even like you're saying, Joe Biden winks at some of these cultural leftist agenda items. Um, but he does that because the people on his staff are fully in supportive of that. For the most part, there are still some holdouts in the Democratic establishment, um, your Rahm Emanuel's or whoever else it is. But in, the, in terms of the trajectory of this country, what we're seeing right now is Jack Dorsey donated ten, donating $10 million right. to Ibram X. Kendi. $10 million um, to Ibram X. Kendi from a corporatist CEO who's only successful because of the capitalist system, giving all this money to an explicit anti-capitalist cause um, because he believes in the cultural leftist agenda, not necessarily the fiscal leftist agenda. And he doesn't maybe realize that those are inextricably intertwined to somebody like Kendi. But the trajectory of our culture is that it, I think tells us Biden is Biden and Bidenism is not a bulwark. Um, it, it may be a sort of stopgap. It may be the thumb in the dam for now, but um, I don't know how long it will take, but the cultural left is in charge of just about every single institution in this country. And what we've seen is an acceleration of them seizing um, power and cultural influence instead of the opposite. And I don't think it's realistic to look at Biden and Bidenism as an effective bulwark against that. I think it would have been more effective if Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg had won and they were talking, you know, saying positive things about the police, saying positive things about mm -hmm. um, American exceptionalism and patriotism. But that's not what we saw happen. We, so we saw... Both... Yeah, no, go for I it. think you're I think you're both right, which is that, yes, Joe Biden is kind of a bulwark within this, and he is kind of like the last bastion of the center left. But what I also think is interesting, Marshall, is it's only possible in order for like this kind of left policing to occur only when a Democrat is in charge of the office. But like when a Republican is in charge of the office, 
then that is not really because and look we're in the middle of an election so it's like a special time but then there's like this left solidarity that occurs which i think is very much key to kind of what emily is talking about which is and i also agree which is that on the younger staff level that this is a completely lost cause and that yeah you know biden himself might be able to hold off some of it but personnel is policy and i very much believe that we're going to have one of the most far left cultural administrations in history, largely just because of the way that individual decisions that come to the desk that you and I will never even hear about, um, which, yeah. you know, we're talking about like like uh, rulings at the sub 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 cabinet level within the bureaucracy, which come to different uh, which come to, to which come to the fore are going to be ruled and, and ruled over in a particular way. The question that I think is really interesting, and I guess this is to both of you, since I disagreed slightly with both, is what does it look like post-Biden? And I think that Biden himself has made a very explicit choice in the direction that Emily is talking about, maybe not even consciously, because he doesn't really, maybe he doesn't even understand it, which is that he has said explicitly, I want to be the bridge to the future of a Pete Buttigieg and a Kamala Harris, two people who are very much embedded with kind of the Ibrahim Kendi type of ideology and won't be necessarily checked, Marshall, by a Connor Friedrichsdorf or a Yasha Monk, they will all absolutely and have in their careers always kind of bowed to these people, even if they previously had held contradictory positions. So I think that that is the way that things are trending. Well, quick thing. And that's why I was going to ask you guys to just sort of like name names and name actual policies, because look, Ibrahim Kendi is going to publish some silly op-eds and he's going to raise a lot of corporate money for his center and he's going to publish a lot of things, but we're not going to have a department of anti-racism. This is the point mm -hmm. where it sort of sounds a little hyper, I, I'm not sure I sound rude, but it sounds a little yeah, hyperbolic. But what if you have anti-racism, what if you have anti-racism as an okay, embedded but, policy priority in the department of justice? So but it doesn't exactly matter. We don't so need so but, but name, but that's, that's my point though. Name. Mm. So per, this, this is my point about why Yasha Munk and why Connor Friedrichsdorf matter. They matter in the same way that when the protesters tore down the Grant statue, that actually really mattered because, you know, I'm from Oregon. I have a like left-leaning Twitter feed and Facebook posts, obviously. Noticing the sort of like change in rhetoric and public perception once the protest exceeded just the sort of comfortable bounds of what some left people would sort of entertain, that's there. And once again, this is why the Biden Republicans' ideas matter, which is that, yes, Biden Republicans, and this is why I also just think the whole idea that we're on this sort of crushing obviously the country's moved to the left since the 60s but the idea though that that is crushing is just not true to me because those biden voters that the democratic party is choosing to go all in on are going to literally serve as a bulwark to that at the end of the day biden voters do not want a department of anti-racism that would make that would basically destroy their ability to make local decisions and their things. It's just like the idea that in every it's, this is the Yimby Nimby debate, right? So in the abstract, everyone says, "Oh, where should be more housing and things should be cheap." But when you actually get into the actual specifics of it, they say, "Well, no, you can't build that windmill behind my backyard because that affects my property value." Yeah, and right, actually, that multifamily right. house thing is sort of a bit of urban blight. So let's keep the nice, comfortable 1950s suburb. I think Yimby Nimbyism is the perfect way to think of how moderate Democrats are going to respond to the actual implications of anti-racism 
moderate Democrats love the aesthetic of it. Everyone loves the aesthetic of having Stant from the beginning, Kendi's book on his bookshelf. I mean, it's literally like, right. oh my gosh, this is devastating. It's, oh, it's right here. Ah, it's right here. Um, revealed. I've been, He's I've been revealed, revealed for who he really is. Um, but the point is, but the point is though, is that they, they like the aesthetic, but the second it actually became, if, here's where I put it. And then I'd love to see your response, Emily. If a Democrat actually said, no, no, straight up, I'm running for Senate in Virginia and we're going to establish the Department of Anti-Racism, it would be over. And even the yeah. implications of it would be over. But there, but that's, but that's, that's the check. Mm. No, so I disagree with that completely. And it gets to the heart of why I do what I do. And I used to cover politics more than I do. And now I cover culture heavily. You do not need a, a government department of anti-racism because having the entire support of corporate America, having the support of academia, having support of the corporate media is more, far more powerful. Having the support of Hollywood is far more powerful than having a government department for anti-racism. Using Kendi's, uh, mainstreaming the Kendi vision, um, the Kendi concept of racism, which is that there's, quote, no neutrality or mainstreaming the far left concept of sex and gender. Uh, mainstreaming that is going to be much, much more effective when you have every cultural institution, you have academia, Hollywood. That's, I think, um, much more powerful than having a department. And to name names, this is actually really easy because of the stupidest Twitter controversy ever that most people have never heard of, which is the damn Harper's letter, which elicited a response. And, and Yasha Monk was part of the, the Harper's letter, David French part of the Harper's letter, Gloria Steinem and Noam Chomsky part of the Harper's letter. But what you didn't see on the Harper's letter were a lot Wait, of- what was the letter? I, I yeah, actually, just, oh, I'm not fake asking. I literally don't wait, know what the letter this, is. Oh my God, you missed this discourse. It's, it's, it rocked the sort of like conservative Twitter sphere or even just like the, the Beltway Twitter sphere. Yeah, right. Yeah, in the way that like the So Rob David French debate did. And then I would go ask like Republican interns uh, if they heard of it. And they're like, <laughs> like no, I don't even know who yeah. they are. Um, and so <laughs> but the, the Harper's letter is important because you got a lot of extremely prominent, uh, mostly uh, leftists, but also just sort of uh, media elites, about 150 of them, to sign on to a letter that um, was pushing back on leftist illiberalism, something like James Bennett's resignation, forced resignation from the New York Times for publishing Tom Cotton was alluded to in it. And then they, they had cobbled together a coalition of people like David Frum and David French and David Brooks, all of the, the key Davids um, on the right. The so they were able, yeah, the, <laughs> the Trinity of <laughs> Davids. Um, and so they, they condemned the rise of illiberalism on the right and on the left. And what that elicited was a letter um, basically saying, well, and this was signed by a bunch of young leftists, some of whom mm. were too afraid to put their name on it, but they signed their institutions and organizations at mainstream media publications um, saying that like, listen, your concept of free speech, like we're fine. Like we think free speech is good. But we also think that, like, we have to be inclusive and, like, blah, 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 right. blah. And, like, you know, your concept of free speech is, can actually be dangerous, et cetera. Um, and so to name names, I would just name every single person on the Harper's response, which it, it got a big response. And that's some very powerful places. And the, the next generation of people to control 
they're already in some control as we've seen, you know, the CEO or not the CEO, an executive at Boeing having to resign over a 20 year op-ed right. that's a 20 year old op-ed, 30 year old op-ed that said women shouldn't be in combat. He's a veteran himself and he had to resign this summer because this was resurfaced. Um, so they're already in control of some of these institutions because people are too afraid to push back because if they push back, they're a bigot. Um, and nobody wants to be a bigot, which I think says a great thing about this country is that everybody like for the most part, not everybody, but by and large, People don't want to be racist. Racism is normalized as a, an evil in this country. Um, it is. But that, right. yeah, of course, and it, of course. Thanks for adding and, that this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, as the white person in this conversation, I yeah. need to say, do yes, the work, right. Emily. Yeah, Jenny Black, yeah Black. I, do the work. You're right. You're right, and a white woman at that. Um, yes. But. I will say that I think the, the next generation of people in control of all of our institutions, we're already seeing the, we're already seeing the results of what it will look like when they're fully in control of those institutions. Mm -hmm. But when they are fully in control, it's going to be this, but amplified. Um, right. And maybe there's something like, maybe if Democrats learn to really truly tap into the Joe Rogan libertarian demographic, who did Joe Rogan have on a show recently? Abigail Schreier and Deb Rousseau, both of which have new books out on um, the harms of some of the far left transgender ideology. So if we're talking about Joe Rogan libertarians, Joe Rogan libertarians are saying, wow, the excesses of, the excesses of cultural leftism are a problem. So and that's, that's the bulwark, not Joe Biden. So I completely, I completely agree with you, and I'll tell you why you're wrong, Marshall. It's because the, we began this discussion with talking about how Republican ideology betrays actual Republican voters. How, despite the fact of, re you could look at polling data of exactly who swung Obama, Trump, and all of that, you would think logically then that these working class voters would serve as a bulwark against this Republican fringe ideology, which is held actually by its base by around like maybe 20% of conservative fiscal voters. In the exact same way, you can discount your argument, which is that the moderate cultural voters of the Biden coalition will not serve as a bulwark against ideology to the extent only that they might switch their vote in a future election. But during the actual governance stage, and this is why I focus on ideology so much on the right, which is that is what defaults to whenever it comes to actual policy positions that are pursued. And I really believe this because, and this is why it's so important to litigate this, Joe Biden is becoming president for one reason, and that is the, or maybe become president, I don't want to speak too declaratively, for one reason, the pandemic, that's it. It's not a law. It's not a a uh, affirmative vote of neoliberalism against neoliberalism. The Trump project, Trumpism, and it's there was one reason Americans are voting today, which is the pandemic and the handling of the pandemic itself. So reading too much into that is actually very dangerous, and that's why I would say that when they come into office, the people who believe this stuff believe that they were affirmatively put in the White House for this purpose. Just like, and you, you, we can do some W history here, George W. Bush was reelected in 2004 for one reason, and that was because Americans wanted to give him a second chance on the war. He thought that that, he, that meant that he needed to cut Social Security and privatize it, right? Oh, turned out all of his voters were like, nope, that's not going to happen. And the only reason it really didn't happen was because that there were Democrats who ran the House of Representatives. But that goes back to my point, which is that the ideology matters a lot. 
because the ideology of the people who are in charge at that time, it's not the the voters are not the bulwark they kind of think it is. I think that speaks to you know very much kind of like the broken kind of elitist system, but that kind of goes to show you how it will work in practice. But so the elites that support Bernie Sanders freaked out when he like accepted the casual Joe Rogan endorsement, and that's such yeah. an important point because. All I'm saying is like what scarifies, scarifies, that's a fun new word. I'm just actually going to run with it. What scarifies me um, is that the Democratic Party is not in tune enough with the culture to realize they need to serve those voters. They don't realize it. And if the Democratic Party did realize it, they could play a large role in sort of normalizing this anti-illiberalism that we saw in the Harper's letter that we see in someone like Yasha Monk's um, efforts to cobble together this coalition. But I don't think the Democratic Party recognizes that. And when you even see those young leftists who back Bernie getting just freaking out because he ran a video with Joe Rogan saying he's probably going to vote for him. Good Lord. How is the party ever going to serve as that bulwark? I do not know. Well, a couple of things. One, no offense, uh, leftist listeners, of which we actually have a decent amount. Young <laughs> leftists don't matter in the Democratic Party. Um, not not yet. Well, no, yeah, but I... I, I I'm not I'm not for any I think I think Mayor Pete is a bet for aside from his mayor Petiness I think Mayor Pete is a better indicator of the future of the Democratic Party aka upwardly mobile um suburban likes yeah. Hamilton all those sort of things than a Brooklyn socialist who goes to DSA meetings but this is so I, but, 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 just, just, but no but no but, but, but to finish though but the thing it but, but but my point though is that Mayor Pete, though, is not. I just, I just genuinely, maybe this is me just being too naive. I just genuinely believe there is such thing as backlash politics. There is actually a point which the left can't move beyond. And I think, and I think that Mayor Pete and that sort of Democrat, the Joe Biden tradition, like not tradition, but (laughs) the tradition (laughs) of Joe Biden, but that sort of center left ambitious person recognizes that. I I, I think at the end of the day, people choose things because they want to get power. That's what politics is for. And if the Democrats ever actually do cross a line, there will be a significant harm for that. And that line is just simply not happening because A, Trump is president, so basically anything goes. And B, that's sort of the broader thing. And I think the last point I'll just sort of bring up on this is that this multiple data points that we have here is that, A, Sagar, in terms of this election just being about COVID, Biden won the nomination a month before COVID actually happened. Mm-hmm. He secured it, so that was a fundamental issue that there. The coalition that Biden brought together, a- aka um, older, per- older black um older black voters and suburbanites. That was always there regardless. That's also the coalition that Democrats won in 2018. When Democrats took the House back, they didn't take the House back because they had a bunch of justice Democrats, young socialists who sort of came in. Actually, they won it because they selected a bunch of moderate. They're not blue dogs. They're not as socially conservative as the Democrats used to be during the 2000s, but they're still decently moderate Democrats. That's Nancy Nancy Pelosi. She's a, she's a good leader of the party. Um, she, I think she's effective in terms of organizing a caucus. And that's just sort of what the thing is. So, so, so it's easy, I think, to sort of cite these sort of extreme realities. But I just think that this... I, so let me put it a better way, which is that I think it's very possible that you could definitely see a year or two of just unhinged, snuck, snuck in leftism imposed from an executive branch. But the second 
the second there is any sort of consequences for this upper middle class sort of set of voters, the second like my parents are attacked because they have a black child, that's what backlashes <laughs> are made out of. That's what a new that's what a new political coalition for Republicans would look like. Because the key thing here, and this is I keep saying the last bit, but the real last bit, which is that that's an actually socially moderate coalition that suburban voters would want to join. Moderate suburban voters are not going to want to join the anti-trans athlete coalition. We're just not going to want to do it. It's a cultural oh, I loser. Disagree. It's going to get it's going to get people shamed at work. The internet doesn't, doesn't, doesn't simply work there. And if Trump has anything to do with it, it's going to be a total nuke. And the, and frankly, the second that that happens, there will, I, I guarantee you this, there will be a movie that comes out about a trans athlete in Texas who is bullied and then it's pretty much just settled. Yeah, but so this is right, exactly. Yep. And so the question is, how do we predict what would happen? Like, I love your version of the future and that like there is a politics of backlash. Absolutely. Is it plausible that that would be the bulwark against the what I would call the, the crushing tide of, of cultural leftism? And that I think is mm -hmm. hyperbolic, but it's a good way to put it. Um, is the politics of backlash going to be a bulwark against that at some point? It's totally possible. Like what we've seen with the Harper's letter, the story that I wrote about it is that it's either a bulwark or a death rattle. And we don't actually know which yet. But you talked about the future of the party being um, more like Mayor Pete than the Brooklyn hipster who's going to the DSA meetings. What separates Mayor Pete from the Brooklyn hipster going to the DSA meetings? Oh, it's not cultural issues. It's fiscal issues. It's literally economics. Like Mayor Pete is a neoliberal centrist mm. on economic issues. Whereas that Brooklyn DSA hipster might be the person who's freaking out because Bernie has Joe Rogan, uh, has a Joe Rogan video package um, rolling with his support. And young leftists do actually have some control over the Democratic Party because their support, the, the Bernie Sanders surge in 2016 moved just about every candidate to the left on a lot of like economic policy issues, Medicare for all, um, immigration, Bernie Sanders himself has had to move. I don't even know if he has yeah, an authentic. Um, right. Yeah, right. And I don't even know if that's authentic. But um, so the, like young leftists have some control and they're about to have more control. But I completely agree with you. I disagree. Uh, we'll have to agree to disagree, I'm sure, on like the trans issue uh, with suburban women. I think if you look at the case studies in Connecticut, um, a very liberal state with some, you know, like less liberal areas, um, that has been really interesting to watch it play out because there are just, and, and I've talked to some of them, there are people who are centrists, just average Americans that are just absolutely incensed by the fact that their daughters have busted their butts for years um, and had all of that taken away literally because of like one, um, and I, I say this with like, this is a really, like, this is a very, I think, important issue. And I think it's a very emotional and personal issue for me. Uh, I say this with utmost compassion for transgender identifying people. But, you know, when you have a trans athlete who upends, you know, by winning state competitions, all of these young women's hard work because he's biologically more capable, uh, and I should, I should say she's biologically more capable of winning that race athletically. That's, it does incense a lot of people in the middle. And I think to the extent that Trump is helpful wait, does it, on wait, issue, do, wait, wait, but, but does it, right? Yeah. So, no, so like, because here's the thing, which is that- On a local yes, level, it does. On a national level, maybe not. But, that, but that's my point. So how, so does mm -hmm. seeing that, we all saw the picture on Facebook and Twitter of in Connecticut, um, the transgender women who won the, the athletic competition. I just don't suspect 
that that is a gen that, no it's not that it's not genuine i think that's something that people sort of see and if they disagree with it they disagree with it but if that's the extent of this crushing wave of liberalism you know the fact that track and also by the way there are no track competitions right now anyways right so at a certain <laughs> point like, how, how but but seriously like is that truly because I, I just suspect there's always, and this is once again the problem of our politics right now. To, to speak to a realignment theme, which is that all politics is national right now. So I just do not. I suspect if there if there is a case, uh, I know plenty of liberals back in my hometown in Portland who would no doubt be incensed by that picture, especially if it happened to their daughters or someone they knew. But I think they would look at that, shake their head, raise their fist a little, but then they'd see Trump say something, and there'd be an MSNBC Rachel Maddow hit. I, I yeah. just don't see, I, I just don't, I think that's the, that's the difference between the sixties and seventies and today. That well, is your, the more that just, it's... just one moment. I actually just realized, I want to clarify the record, which is that the DSA leftists actually weren't upset about the Joe Rogan thing. Yeah, It was right, the right. Pete Buttigieg ones. And I don't know. I mean, does that throw a wrench in the kind of the framework that we're talking about here? Because it was actually the boot, it was the Biden campaign, which attacked Bernie for accepting Rogan's endorsement. endorsement. Yeah. So this is what's so interesting. Of, yeah, I mean, so it's like, so now, Marshall, your grand cultural moderate hero is actually the one who's attacking Joe uh, Bernie Sanders for accepting Joe Rogan's endorsement as an alleged transphobe. So, I mean, quote is he Kamala all Harris? Culture? It's all politics, yeah. man. It's all politics. <laughs> this is like the DSA is such an outlier in the Democratic Party, yeah. and that's why I think you're right. It's it's the yeah. Biden people, and it is all politics. But there are a lot of Biden staffers who you know think that's just disgusting that you would ever ever mm -hmm. take the endorsement of somebody as bigoted as Joe Rogan, and they really really believe that. And so I do think Marshall is correct that there will be a politics politics of backlash. I, the question is whether it's a bulwark or a death rattle when it right. really becomes a thing. Like, I honestly don't know. It scares me because I do look at the trajectory of the last 50 years in this country, and there have been a lot of, thank God, positive improvements for women. Um, I, I can have a credit card, which I'm very excited mm -hmm. about. Um, the beats, and as are huge. the banks. Right. Oh, well, I can, I can yeah. buy my own beats on credit. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think there's been a lot of good stuff, but also I think when you look at the trajectory, it's been that progressives have, are winning the culture and it's, it's accelerating um, exponentially. And so I'm not confident that whatever uh, bulwark arises from the politics of backlash is going to truly um, be something that saves us all. And issues that we haven't even gotten into, guys, that I know that you're, you follow, things like pornography, um, things like religious affiliation, these are all cultural issues. Um, and even just like technology, big tech. Sure. Um, these are all really key cultural issues that I see the cultural left being able to win control of easily. And I don't know how to, people are going to wrest control of them. I do expect that there's going to be a stronger backlash. I think it will be inspired by when the stuff went, the more that we see the results of the cultural leftism on a local level. So the more Connecticut high schools they are, there are, the more Covington Catholics there are, the more of these situations that start to like take what happens on the coasts and import it into middle America. Um, that's where I think you're going to see more of this. But I mean, like by and large agree with, with what you're saying. I just am less mm -hmm. optimistic about how that would turn out. Well, really interesting analysis, um, Emily. Emily, you can find her at Emily Jashinsky on Twitter and over at her own podcast, The Federalist Radio Hour. Highly recommend. I've been a guest there as well. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Emily. you. Also, subscribe to our YouTube because I've, I've been inspired subscribe. by the YouTube success. <laughs> go and hit subscribe on their YouTube, uh, everybody, if you don't mind. 
Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I will see you on Thursday when I will be having a really interesting conversation about Silicon Valley, TikTok, and the future of the tech industry as we look at our broader conflict with China moving into 2021. Yeah, and the reason that it's only going to be Marshall is because at the exact same time, I will be doing a crossover podcast for The Realignment and with Andrew Yang for Yang Speaks. So I'm actually really interested to hear what you guys want me to ask him since this comes out on Tuesday. we got 24 hours until I'm going to be taping with Andrew. Send in any questions that you guys have got, and I will make sure that I ask them to Andrew. I really can't wait for that discussion. It's going to be really awesome, and we're going to hope to bring it to you as soon as humanly possible. Thank you, as always, to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this season. If you want to learn more about them, you can check out RebootConference.org, where Marshall and I will be speaking. And last but not least, as a friendly reminder here, folks, you have got to get us to 1,000 reviews. After you do, we will leave you alone. Until then, we're going to ask every single episode. you got to indulge us. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you guys later.